The reading from Matthew chapter 14, commencing at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they crossed over, they landed Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. That is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening again, everybody. It'd be good to have a Bible uh, in front of you and open at Matthew chapter 14, just so that you can follow along with where we're going this evening. Uh, And as you grab that, or I guess get it on your phone or something like that, uh, let's pray. Let's talk to God. Our loving Father, we do thank you that you have spoken and you speak and that in this word we meet your son Jesus uh, and we pray that your spirit would open your word to us and we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and give us understanding and give us faith in him and we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, So yeah, it was like last century, I'm really showing my age now, but there was a lady called Joan Osborne who had a hit with a song called What If God Was One of Us? And it was a hit because, well, I think it was catchy. And also people perhaps like to speculate, what what if God was one of us? Again, it was like last century and I really am showing my age, but the movies do speculate as well. Uh, Hollywood speculates about this kind of thing. There was a movie called Bruce Almighty. Hands up if you've seen it. Oh, there's more than I thought there would be. There you go, Bruce Almighty. Uh, Jim Carrey plays Bruce Nolan, this ambitious but pretty hopeless news reporter with an incredibly patient girlfriend called Grace. 
and things are not going well for him and one day he sort of loses it at God, complaining about the rubbish job that God is doing and the long and the short of it is that God sort of brings him in uh, for an interview to take over. I'm going on holidays, if you think I'm that bad, all the best. And Bruce uh, really does take to being invested with divinity. If you've seen the movie, you know that he orchestrates crazy events that coincidentally happen while he's out reporting on really boring stuff. So he's Johnny on the spot. Uh, He's on a date with his uh, girlfriend and he drags the moon closer to the earth and makes the stars brighter so things just go better. And that causes havoc, doesn't it, for everyone else. Things don't go so well when Bruce is almighty. And that's because a man becomes God. Uh, We tend to imagine the what if God was one of us question in very human ways. If God was one of us, he'd just be a more powerful version of us. Divine power kind of bolted on to a person with all of their flaws. And that makes for a funny movie, but the reality would be frightening. What if you answer that question, what if God was one of us from a different direction, not what it would mean for a person to become God and take on divine power. What would it mean for God, the God that we meet in the Bible, uh, to turn up in the flesh? What would that look like? Well, Matthew shows you, doesn't he? And this is a highlight passage for showing you that the chapters, as Danny mentioned, that we're working through this term are really chapters where Jesus clarifies his identity more and more so. Last week, we see that he is a king like no other. Not like Herod, not like earthly rulers who serve themselves, not at all. And I think what you also see in Matthew's Gospel at this point is that Jesus' power, well, it seems to be growing. I mean, the miracles seem to be getting bigger. He's been healing the sick, the lame, the blind, casting out demons, feeding 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. The thing is, I don't think he's getting more powerful. I think just more and more he's showing his disciples who he is. He is Israel's Messiah, but more. He's their God. And when God becomes man, it's not what people expect. Not at all. And there's three things I think this passage teaches us about Jesus, about God becoming man. And the first is, is that him being God doesn't, overwhelm or overshadow his humanity it doesn't make him less human and you see it in the first two verses there if you've got it in front of you five thousand people are in a i guess you'd call it a fish burger food coma um jesus then sends his disciples across the sea of galilee ahead of him in a fishing boat and he sends off the crowd and notice there in verse 23 he went up the mountain by himself to pray alone and you think big deal Uh, maybe he's just an introvert Um, but he needs to pray and that's the point that's a very human thing to do 
And I suspect this because, uh, remember back last week, in verse 13, Jesus has heard that Herod is getting wise to his power. And it dredges up a whole bunch of sadness about his forerunner, John, was killed. And remember, he was wanting to get away with his disciples, perhaps to process the grief of that and to prepare them for what's ahead. But instead, it's crowds of people. It's healing needy people and sick people. And, and, and I'm not saying, look, his divine power is getting emptied out of him, like the God battery's going flat. But humanly speaking, he is real flesh and blood and doing what anyone with that kind of burden on him needs to do, which is to stop and to pray. Just because he's God, fully God, that doesn't overshadow that he is a real man. Now, we're stepping into territory that the early church peddled hard to work out and to articulate clearly. We were singing about it before. Come behold a wondrous mystery, the dual natures of Jesus. And it's not that he sort of seemed to be human. He's fully human. And he's fully God at once. It's not like a seesaw either. He's, he's not God more sometimes and more human other times. And as he prays, look, we're stepping into Trinitarian territory, which is always hard work for our little brains. Like, why does God the Son even need to talk to his Father? Like, don't they just kind of know? I think they talk simply because God is three-personal and relational, and that's what relationships involve. They talk. And here you see God the Son in the flesh being as dependent as we should be on his Father. You know, I think we expect if God was one of us, he'd have no need of anything. He would just kind of whip up whatever he wants, a kind of superman who can magic up whatever it is, to get himself out of want, worry or weariness. Now, there's a verse in John's Gospel, John chapter 5, verse 19, which I always trip over. Jesus says, The Son can do nothing by himself. He's not independent. He really is human with a real mission from his father which he can only do in dependence on him and I suspect that's what's playing out here on the mountainside praying father give me the resources the strength to endure and to suffer and to go and die like John did now that's unexpected and I don't think we entirely get it but it's enormously comforting because what does God know about being you I get his conception was miraculous, but his birth, I mean, aside from taking place in the kind of spot where germaphobes freak out, it was normal. He knows what it is to be a helpless baby who needs to be fed, burped and cleaned up after. I mean, get that. Uh, he knows what it is to be hungry and tired, to go without, to be sad and to be angry and to be those things at the same time. You know, he stood at the grave of his friend, Lazarus, and he shed not fake or not CGI tears, but real tears. And got angry at death. Now, the writer to the Hebrews says he was tempted 
in every way. And I think, you know, think of the, the ways you get tempted. Wow. He knows pain and real physical agony. He knows what it is to be betrayed, to be at the mercy of others, to be abused, to be bullied, to be forsaken. That is unexpectedly comforting because you can expect to stand by the grave of someone you love sometime soon and to shed real tears and he's been there before you. You will breathe your last and he's been there before you. And you can expect temptation, can't you? Like guaranteed. And Jesus is not unsympathetic then. And more than that, he's actually shown us in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, that you can say no to it, to temptation. I think we, we expect that Jesus overcomes temptation, oh, just because he's God. No, 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 no. He overcomes temptation because he is truly human and depends on his Father's word to resist temptation. He, he resists out of his humanness. What if God was one of us? Well, Jesus shows you he's, he's not distant, uncaring or ambivalent about you and this evening we can be deeply thankful for that. But there's another side to this. Uh, he's fully human, but secondly, that humanity doesn't overshadow his divinity, his godness, if you like, and that really matters. The miracles I was saying before seem to be getting bigger, more powerful looking, but they're not random. Now, Jesus doesn't make the moon get closer to the earth. Uh, he doesn't make the boat the disciples are in float in midair over Galilee. He doesn't turn dogs into cats or vice versa, which would be fun, but, like, pointless, right? The miracles have a, a rhyme and a reason to them. So verse 24, if you pick it up there, the disciples are struggling at the oars of their little fishing boat in a place where Jesus has interestingly put them. Verse 25, on the choppy sea of Galilee, what do they see? Jesus walking towards them. It's his path. That is a big miracle, isn't it? With a big point. And I think it's interesting, again, they've seen him just feed 5,000 people. They know someone powerful is in the neighbourhood. And they don't think, oh, Jesus. They go, it's a, verse 26, a ghost. Now, to be fair, it's somewhere around 12 o'clock to 3am in the morning, the fourth watch of the night. They've been rowing for a few hours. Uh, I'd be tired too. And they might, look, they might be familiar with the Sea of Galilee, they're, they're fishermen, but in the mind of ancient folk, big bodies of water like this are, if you like, a portal down to the abyss. The Greeks would call it Hades, the Jews thought about Sheol, it's the abyss, it's the place of, it's the place of ghosts, it's the place of evil spirits. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, remember, Jesus cast out some demons from two guys and they asked to be sent into a herd of pigs and where do the pigs run? Straight back from whence they came, those demons. Uh, into the Sea of Galilee. The wind and the waves are the scary thing here, but supernaturally and spiritually, the disciples are freaking out about what's beneath. But this miracle is him saying, look, I'm not a ghost, I'm not Superman, I am God. 
You know, who else in the Bible does stuff with the sea and turns it into a path? God does. Uh, In Psalm 77, Asaph, this bloke in the Old Testament, writes about this. He says, The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths convulsed. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. That's who it is. And he's not just showing them that that's who it is. He tells them, look at verse 27. Now, take courage... It is I, don't fear. It is I in Greek is ego me, or you could, if you wanted to, translate it as I am. Actually, that's the way the Greek version of the Old Testament translates God's name. The name that he reveals himself by to Moses in a burning bush. But the name that he uses to reveal himself to Israel. Jesus is saying, do not fear, I am is here which means I am your creator who has control over watery chaos and I am your saviour who rescues you from what's beneath, down in the abyss. We'll come to Peter more again in a moment, but as he's sinking and cries out, Lord, save me, again, he's not freaking out so much about drowning. I think he's freaking out because Jews thought that if you drown in the Sea of Galilee, that's the highway to hell. It's a fate worse than death. I think this is, again, why Jesus sends them across the lake into the wind. It's not like a pointless errand, hey, boys, go rowing. He's cementing in their minds who he is because we're on our way to Jerusalem and we're on our way to a cross and who's going to be crucified on it? Not an apparition, not a ghost, not just a guy, but I am in the flesh to save Peter and to save us from hell. I'd wager all the miracles are a foretaste of what Jesus achieves for us through his death at the cross as he rescues you and me from evil powers, from death, from the very thing that we deserve. It's an unexpected thing because, again, in the ancient stories where gods turn up in sort of human form, they use their power in trivial capricious, self-serving ways, Bruce Almighty kind of ways, right? But not this God. He uses his power to save you. And so what do you do with him, with Jesus? Well, like the disciples, look at verse 33. They worship him. Truly, you are the Son of God. And however clear they are at this point in their theology, This is not what Jewish folk normally do. In fact, the law forbids you from bowing down to what looks like a mere man and saying you're God. But Jesus doesn't stop them at this point. He is very clear. He is utterly self-conscious about who he is. He's clear about who he is. Are you clear about who he is? Uh, Not long after starting work as a pastor... Again, what feels like last century ago, but it wasn't. Um, We were preaching through in in the church I was working in through John's Gospel. And Jesus, in John chapter 10, I was preaching on this passage, he says, I and the Father are one. Clear claim to be equal with the Father, to be God. And an elderly lady in that church, she'd been there for years and years and years, sat through plenty of sermons led a Bible study, I think. I think she even had taught Sunday school to little kids. She comes up to me after the service and says, look, let me get this straight. 
You're telling me Jesus is God? Most of her life, she thought God was, uh, Jesus was uh, God's son in some sense, a special, very powerful, a semi-divine maybe. I couldn't quite get it out of her, but it had never dawned on her that he is the one that we gather around to worship because he is God. I'm glad that it did dawn on her, though, for, for, for her, though, that day. Has it dawned on you, though? Because in this passage, Jesus is spelling out for you dramatically here, he is the, the almighty God of Israel. He is I am, the true and living God. And he's come to deal with what takes us to hell, if you like, our, the heart of our sin. Our bowing down to anything and everything but the one true God. Our tendency is to take that what if God, God was one of us question and say, yeah, that would be me. I come first, I matter most, I rule me. But he's come to rescue you from that. And so you should worship him and put him first. And life is built around him. And that brings us to the last thing about this. What if God was one of us? Well, you worship him and you follow him. Divinity, if you like, means discipleship. And Peter shows us that at the end of this passage. And he shows us that there's kind of a right way to do it and there's a let's just go with less than right way, okay? We'll get into this more as the term rolls on about discipleship and about the way of faith. But what you see here is that faith, it's, it's a thing that gets out of the boat. And that's the right thing to do. It's an interesting way that Peter puts it if you look at verse 28. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And I think, look, that's very good. If Jesus is God, he has the right to command me to tell me what to do with my life. That is a very refreshing approach to God, I reckon. Uh, Some of the commentaries I've read on this think Peter's a bit rash and cocky, but no, this is the right way to respond to God in the flesh, to, to, to move towards him. It's the way of faith and of discipleship. It takes that first step and leaves behind what you think is safe or secure or better. And Peter walks, not because he's powerful, Jesus again is making this happen. And I think it's because Jesus is powerfully teaching Peter and the guys in the boat and us today a powerful lesson that everything that you do as his follower, as his disciple, is his power working in you and through you. That's a massive lesson that the the disciples need, particularly by the time we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says to them, go and make disciples. And how? Well, I will be with you. My power. That's a a massive lesson that you and me need. I'm always with you. My power working through you, says Jesus. You you need to invite someone to simply Christianity. Or, Or you need to open your mouth and actually talk to somebody about Jesus. Or you're trying to live for Jesus faithfully amongst your peer group at uni, which is not easy at all. It's his power that will enable you to do it. 
And look, there's plenty of real and frightening reasons not to step towards Jesus and follow him, but who is he again? Now, this is a picture, isn't it, of how Jesus empowers you to take that first step to obey him. And so if you're here this evening coming along because you are actually trying to work out who Jesus is and you're not sure about taking that step towards him, like Peter, ask him to tell you what to do. That's a good thing to do. That's a great place to start. But Peter also, I think he shows us a less than good way to do discipleship, but it's not too bad. Things go pear-shaped, don't they? Verse 30, what does he start looking at there? Uh, you read there, but when he saw the wind, and I take that to mean, mean the effects of the wind, he was afraid and he starts sinking. You know, simply put, he takes his eyes off Jesus. He fixes his eyes instead on the very things that he's afraid of, the wind, the waves. And when you think about where we are again, what lies beneath. And notice what Jesus says about this in verse 31. He says, you of little faith. It's little faith. Faith that, if you like, seems to be overwhelmed by fear and by doubts. A faith that was looking to Jesus and starts looking elsewhere. And so I guess the lesson about discipleship here is that faith is this thing that gets out of the boat and keeps going, keeps walking toward Jesus, even when, metaphorically, life feels like a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And in the words of Hebrews 12, faith is fixing your eyes on Jesus because he is bigger than our fears and the frightening things. Anyone who can conquer a storm on the Sea of Galilee and the storm that he faces at the cross as he strides over death and defeats it, he must be trustworthy. But it's a wonderful relief though in this, isn't it, for us, for Peter, because he's really in the thick of it here, that little faith still saves you. You know, he cries out for mercy. And isn't it good that Jesus doesn't go, okay, Peter, look, you need to just try a little bit harder with the faith stuff here and then I'll think about maybe helping you. No, he just immediately, verse 31, reaches out his hand and catches him. As Danny was saying before, you're seeing the might of God and you're seeing his mercy and compassion once again. Jesus will save those of little faith, but folks, that's not where he wants you to stop. He wants a faith that walks towards him by his power till you get to him. Uh, there's a, an old commentator, a guy called J.C. Ryle, and look, I quote him a lot because, well, he's quotable, and he points out the obvious, which I often miss, and that's hugely, hugely helpful he writes, when Peter gets onto the water, he's nearer to Jesus than when he's in the boat. And you're all like, yep. But that's the thing. That's stepping towards safety and security because the boat is not safe. It's going to get swamped. I think we need to remember that kind of thing in the midst of our fears and when we're tempted to believe that actually life without Jesus would be better. I don't know what's going on for you today specifically, but like what frightens you? I'll tell you what frightens me. Like if you know my family, you know I've got two high needs kids. I'm dead scared about the future for them. Because who's going to care for them when I'm gone? Because they can't look after themselves. 
And when I fix my eyes on that fear, that is overwhelming, and boy, oh boy, I sink. Now you might say, hang on, Jesus practically can't sort of fix things for them right now. I reckon this miracle says he is I am and he can do all that he pleases to do and he seems to be pleased to rescue and save and care for his people and he is bigger than that fear and that problem and he can empower me and my wife to keep walking toward him and planning for my kids' future. But he's also powerful, isn't he? He's just able to do more than we can ask or imagine, perhaps. What about you? Do you fear having maybe no money, the cost of living overtaking you? And this feeding of the 5,000, this miracle as well, who are you looking at? You're looking at, I am the great provider who can give you again all that you need. And Maybe fixing our eyes on him, money becomes less of a scary thing, not because he all of a sudden floods your bank account with lots of dollars, but because he actually just proves himself good. Do you fear missing out? I think we need to get better at telling ourselves that life without Jesus is actually missing out. So what if God was one of us? Well, I think what we would expect is something like Bruce Almighty. He's the God that we would make for ourselves. And that's not good at all. Uh, There was a guy, a pastor called Edward Shalito. He was uh, around during the First World War and he was trying to minister to soldiers who'd come home from that, broken and wounded men. And he was trying to talk with them about Jesus and they were just utterly shell-shocked, literally. Uh, so wounded, so horrified by what they'd seen that they just couldn't believe in God at all. I think to try and minister to them, he wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars and it finishes this way. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. He is not what we would expect. He is not the God that we would ever make up. And he is certainly not the God that we deserve. But thankfully, friends, he's the God we get. Let's pray. Almighty God and loving Father, we thank you for sending your Son in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, to become one of us. Knowing our hurts and our fears and our frailty, our tears, even being tempted. And we thank you that he is God, powerful to save us from sin and death and hell. Lord, have mercy on us and rescue us from thinking less of Jesus than we should. Indeed, have mercy on us and give us hearts that turn to him in worship. And give us the grace and the power that we need to step toward Jesus and to keep doing that. And we pray this in his strong and living name. Amen.